Are you a follower of Jesus? Now, good, I heard a lot of yeses, I think. And yet, I'll just pause. Maybe that was a little abrupt. I don't want you to take that question wrong. Are you a follower of Jesus? My, my expectation would be that many of you are. Um, but I'm asking the question for sincere purposes of reflection this morning. I'm, I'm not asking it in an accusatory fashion or, a, or, a, or a, you know, assuming that you're not. Uh, are you a follower of Jesus? And as we get started this morning, I want us to reflect a little bit on that. What does that mean? What does that include? What, what, how is life lived out? If, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to Christ, then, then what, what does that look like? How is that lived out? How does that identity as a son or daughter of God's son, how, if, how is that identity impacted or how does it shape the way you live? And, and, and people around us, when people around us observe us, our lives, our words, our actions, our, our overflow, the, the fruit of our lives, what do they see? And I'm, and I'm asking these questions of myself too this morning to reflect. What if we, followers of Jesus, what if we are occasionally too casual about all this? What if we're too comfy with, with what it means to be a Jesus follower? What if we're comfortable where I'm, at, where I'm at? What if Jesus has more? And, and I watch how I say that. What if Jesus has more? Do you see what's on my face? This isn't a condemning what, what if there's more. It's a Jesus has more for us, church family. Look at the screen with me. Jesus' own words from Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What's the cross for Jesus? It was his instrument of death. And follow me, Jesus says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. If we live for ourselves, if we're satisfied with this world, then we miss out on true life, abundant, rich, meaningful, full, true, eternal life with God. That's what these verses on the screen are saying. And who will find life? Who will find life with God? Whose life will be saved? It's those that are for Jesus and for the gospel, who give up focus on self and, in, and, and who give up going our own way, who, who instead of choosing our own way, our own path, our rebellion against God, what, what works for me, it's those instead who entrust our lives to God, willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Followers of Jesus do what? Follow Jesus, willing to entrusting ourselves to him, every area of life, willing to follow him, willing to live a life that looks like his, willing to walk in his steps. What if, as a follower of Jesus, what as, as Christians, what if we have accepted the easy parts, the comfortable parts, and what if we're missing the heart, the deeper, the spiritual growth, the best of life that God has for us, the best of life even in this broken earthly experience, and certainly the best of life with him in the future. Grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and open to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
As you turn there, I'll say good morning. My name is Derek, and I'm glad that you're here, and we're going to study God's Word together now. So get your Bible on your lap or your device uh, to your Bible app and turn with me to 1 Peter 1. And as you turn to 1 Peter 1, I'm just going to jump right in there before you make any bad assumptions about me, before you go, what are we, are we starting over? I thought we've already been there, done that. We're in, a, we're in a series of messages teaching our way through the book of the Bible called 1 Peter, a letter written by an early church leader named Peter. And uh, yes, we are in chapter 4, uh, but we're going to start here. Here you'll see why. But I promise we're not starting over. As is often the case, as you often hear from me, context is key. So when we get to chapter 4 and we get to our verses for today, it's so much better when we're kind of caught in the flow of the book, when we hear what Peter is doing from start to finish, when we're reminded of what we've been studying in the last few weeks. Uh, And so let me just very quickly kind of skim some highlights, I guess you could say. So we're in 1 Peter 1. I'll mention where I'm reading, or you're welcome to just listen to me as I hit some reminders for us before we get to this uh, morning's passage. We're listening for big ideas, themes. What's Peter doing? What's this letter about? What's repeated? Let's jump into the flow of First Peter. First, I love to highlight First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then I skip to verse 6. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can look with me into chapter 2, verse 9. But you, God's people, you, follower of Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, this series of messages is called Sojourners because we We are citizens of heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. We are just sojourners. We are just passing through this earthly existence. And yet God has purposes for us while we're here. And so God, what are you up to? What is this sojourn all about? What are you teaching me? And so in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you, chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners, as those that are passing through on your way to heaven, Abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct, your behavior, your actions honorable, so that why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day that Jesus comes. And then look down with me to verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21. For to this, follower of Jesus, you have been called to what? To endure unjust suffering. 
to, to you, follower of Jesus, you have been called to endure unjust suffering. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you the ultimate example so that you might follow in his steps. Followers of Jesus do what? Including enduring unjust suffering. Following Jesus' ultimate example, he committed no sin, verse 22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, the Father in heaven, the only one who is the just judge. I couldn't have planned this if I tried. I had, I had thought of some comments for this moment, and I couldn't have planned this if I tried because God's already in control of all that. That my friend Debbie, when she was up here without any conversation with her, expressed how she was moved by worship, by our singing, by, by, by some of the lyrics and the truthfulness of God's goodness to her that we sang about. And then as she prayed, I heard a tremble, moved by God's goodness to her. And then I couldn't read the scripture a minute ago because it's such spectacularly good news to me. And church family, I don't mind telling you that that especially in recent weeks, I have found myself weeping. Weeping with joy. Times like Debbie did with the lyrics of a song reminded of God's goodness, found myself frequently in recent weeks weeping with joy when I read the scriptures. Why? Because my need is great. Life is, is hard I am hurting at times. My family is hurting at times. And my need is great. I am messed up. I go my own way. I sin against God. I, d I doubt his goodness. And so I find myself weeping when I'm reminded of the glorious good news of what God has done for us through his son Jesus. And that weeping can be joyful because even in my pain and even in suffering and even in my sin and knowing that I fall short of God's glory, even in the midst of that, that weeping can be joyful because I realize the amazing gift of God's spectacular grace that I don't get what I do deserve and that I do get what I don't deserve because of Jesus. And I always do this when the weather shifts. I change, start wearing long sleeve shirts to church, and then I get blazing hot up here. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> oh, no. No, that's Pastor Ed that takes shirts off up here. I don't. <laughs> don't take that out of context. He had another shirt underneath when he took a shirt. Okay. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. 
And so my last little pass through 1 Peter then, chapter 3, verse 18, that, that Jake taught us the scriptures last Sunday. 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Is that good news, church family? The glorious gospel good news is that God rescues sinners like you and I through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That The glorious gospel good news is that God doesn't leave us stuck in our sin, in darkness, and separated from him, but that he pursues us. That before time, he knew we would need a rescue, and so he sovereignly orchestrated the events of the entire history of the universe so that Jesus would come and that he would live the life, the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He would die the substitutionary death that we deserve on the cross and he would be raised to victorious life again so that we too could be saved, so that we too could be children of God, so that we too would be brought out of the darkness and into the light. That's the glorious gospel good news. And so, Father, thank you for reminding us of the flow of Peter's letter. Thank you for reminding us of the reality of suffering in our earthly sojourn. And even more so, Father, thank you for reminding us of your goodness to us through Christ. That his willing suffering is our example and that his willing suffering made it possible for us to be with you. So teach us as we continue in our passage this morning then, Father, teach us. We need you by your spirit to show us what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. So what does this passage have for us this morning, church family? What does following in Jesus' steps include? What does following in Jesus' steps not include? Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. Let's learn from the word of God this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that we are to have the same mindset, that we as followers of Jesus, one of the ways we follow Jesus is by having our, the same way of thinking. And what did we just hear about that was Jesus' way of thinking? Jesus entrusted himself to God trusted the only just judge, even when his circumstances were really not good. Even when everybody was against him, even when, 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 when Jesus' earthly existence included being put to death unjustly. What is the mindset that Jesus had? He entrusted himself to God. And so not only, so then what about us as followers of Jesus? Not only do we need to follow Jesus in the easy, comfortable parts, but we are called to die to ourself, to put to death our old self, to turn away from our sin and, sin and turn to Jesus. We are called to die to ourselves and live for him. One of the commentators I studied this week wrote this, to follow Jesus, this is on the screen, I believe, to follow Jesus is to follow not just in, in vindication and glory of Jesus, but also to follow him in suffering and dying. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 1 again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I know that, that, uh, that part there at the end of verse 1 comes across surprisingly. It comes across awkward. Uh, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does this mean that those who suffer no longer sin? Well, well certainly not, because we, we have our own experience to testify, and we have the rest of the scriptures to testify that even those of us in Christ, even those of us that have been saved, continue to struggle with sin. Now, sin doesn't have the same power over us. It did. But we still struggle with sin. So it's not saying that those who suffer uh, sin no more, but the idea, even, you know, even from my study Bible, was this, that when believers endure suffering, when you as a follower of Jesus endure suffering for the sake of Jesus, in order to follow Jesus, in order to live for him, in order to be obedient to him, in order to glorify him, when we endure suffering for the sake of Jesus, we're showing that it's our purpose in life then to live for him, not ourselves. And when we live for ourselves, we go our own way, we rebel against God, we fall into sin, and we just keep going. But when we decide to live for Jesus, do we struggle occasionally with sin? Yes. But when we say yes to obeying Jesus and doing whatever that looks like, then we've kind of said no to sin. We've ceased to the power of sin over us. A commentator, again, Juan Sanchez, that I was studying from this week, right at this, wrote it this way. If you suffer... Uh, actually, I'm going to read the first part before, the, uh, before what's on the screen. Sorry, it says, Peter's point is that Christian suffering is an indication that we have chosen Jesus over this world. One more time. Peter's point is that Christian suffering is an indication. It's a marker. If we're suffering, it's an indication, it's a marker that we have chosen Jesus over easy, comfortable, going the way of the world and blending in. And then the quote continues as you see it on the screen. If you suffer as a Christian at the hands of of a hostile world, it is because you have chosen the will of God with its righteousness. To choose God's will is to choose suffering. I love when I get to be the bearer of such really joyful news, right? No, I mean, I, I make light for a moment so that we can breathe and so that we can look to God and so that we can ask as we sojourn, God, this is where you have us. I know I'm a citizen of heaven. I know glorious things are in store for me on the other side of this earthly life. But God, what do you have for me now in this sojourn? And, and it's the testimony of Scripture, and it's probably your experience that following Jesus includes pain and trial and difficulty and suffering. So, the, so the, what we've been talking about then begs this question, the really difficult question to pose to ourselves, what does the evidence of our life reveal? Do our actions and our words and our circumstances of life indicate that we have chosen to follow Jesus for whatever that includes, at whatever cost, at whatever comes our way? Or do our circumstances and, and our, our engagement in the Christian life seem to indicate that really, actually, in truth, we are more comfortable choosing the world? Verse 3, chapter 4, verse 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. And really, this is an expression for non-believers at this point. For, this time, for the time that is in the past suffices for doing what non-believers want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You could look at the beginning of verse 3 like, like Peter saying something like this, enough already, enough. The past is in the past. Put your sins in the rearview mirror. As a follower of Jesus, go, I've been there, done that, and I need to stop now. For, for the time that is past suffices for all that kind of fruit of life, of behavior, of actions. Be done, Peter says. Enough is enough. And, and is this necessary for us to be confronted by this this morning? Here we are, a gathering mostly of followers of Jesus and, and a gathering of a church family. Do we need to be confronted by these words? Does this kind of living that was just described there in verse 3, is that still a problem within the church? It is. Doing what we want, doing what's fun, doing what feels good, going our own way, going along with the culture, doing whatever... It's a problem even in the church, even among followers of Jesus. And so Peter's saying, be done. Enough already. Enough with this theology of if it makes you happy. Enough with this theology based on if it feels good. That's terrible theology. That's a terrible place to get your view on life from. And, and here's the thing, we look at a list like that, a list of sins in, in our Bibles, and sometimes it's easy to go, ha, I don't struggle with that, that's them. Sorry, I wasn't pointing at anybody, that's them. <laughs> I was just pointing away from myself. Uh, it's easier to go, that's, that's not me, it's other people, right? Well, then one of the commentators I studied this week just points this out. Hey, look, you know, if it's not, if, if, if you're not actually sinning, if you're not actually committing the sins that were listed in that verse, maybe you think about whether you're watching them or reading them. Smutty books, clicking the link, television shows that are not helpful at all are engaging our hearts and our minds in these same areas of sin whether we're actually involved or not. So Peter is saying here, wake up. Fight back. We've talked about other scriptures in recent months. Do whatever it takes to cut off the sin. Fight back. Put boundaries in place. Seek Jesus. Tell the truth about your life to someone close to you so they can help you live for Jesus and not for self. Put to death your old ways. Put to death your old ways, your old life. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for new life. Verse 4. With respect to this, with respect to these behaviors, or respect to your behavior, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And so they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Is this, you may notice that this is your experience. When we choose to be different, when by the grace of God, 
when by the grace of God and him working in us, we as followers of Jesus choose and are, are somehow able to be different than the world around us, the world may not like it. The world may think your good behavior means you're judging their bad behavior. And when people see good behavior and they feel judged by your behave, good behavior, they feel that their bad behavior is being judged, then they malign you. They're against you. Christians are rejected. That's one of the reasons that living as a light is difficult is because they see the light. They don't like the light. And so we get rejected. This passage says maligned. But is it our job to judge the world? Is it our job to get them to shape up? It says they will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We entrust ourselves to God. He is the just judge. And someday Jesus will return and set all things right. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is a confusing section at first too, perhaps, perhaps easily misunderstood, but I think if we can quickly kind of figure that out, then there's just some really great news there. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That strikes us as awkward. What it is not is it's not a second chance for those who have died. That's not what the scriptures teach. What is meant here, I think, simply is, hey, this is why the good news of Jesus was preached to everyone, including these people that used to be alive and are now dead. It's, it's saying, this passage is saying, hey, all of us that live a human life in the flesh will, will end up in that judgment of earthly death. All of us will experience earthly death. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, And though judged in the flesh the way all people are, death, because of Jesus, because of the gospel, they might live in the Spirit as the way God does. Your soul is eternal. Your soul will live eternal. We will experience judgment and earthly death. And then what is, what is the destination of our soul? It depends on what we've done with Jesus Christ. Whether we've come to the end of ourselves and recognize we can't save ourselves and we put ourselves at his feet, call upon his name, recognize Jesus as Lord and God. And the gospel was preached to all so that they might live the way God does. And verse 7 begins our, our last few verses. We're going to cover through 11 here this morning. 7 through 11, we've still got to go. And, uh, and now the passage kind of shifts pretty practical. It gives us some ideas of what life as followers of Jesus looks like. And verse 7 starts with this. The end of all things is at hand. And, 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 uh, and the, the end of all things is at hand was true when this was written 2,000 years ago. And the end is at hand is true today in 2023. Now, we might have misunderstood back then and thought, well, does that mean Jesus is coming tomorrow? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, we, we would love that, for, that to be what it means, but what it, what it does mean is still true. It's still imminent. Jesus' return is imminent. It was imminent then, and it's imminent, imminent today, and we have that to look forward to. The end of all things is at hand. What that phrase means, really, is just that, hey, everything that needs to happen 
in terms of God's salvation plan has happened. We mentioned this earlier. God orchestrates the, 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 the whole run of history to bring about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that, God, so that us, sinful, separated from him, would have a way to God. That's in place. Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen again. He offers us new life, and so the end is at hand. We don't know the time, and we shouldn't be concerned about the time. We shouldn't be trying to predict the time. We shouldn't be worried about making this or that sense out of all the news and this and that. Instead, we should know that the return of Jesus is imminent. And if the return of Jesus is imminent, follower of Jesus, what it means is that we should be ready. Is that the call of Scripture is to get ourselves ready. So the beginning of verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. We are in the final stages of history. We are living in the last days. And if we are living in the last days, you know what's fun to imagine is what the end days look like, is what the end game is, is that what the final part of the story is. And for that, we can look down at the end of our passage for today, the end of verse 11. The second half of verse 11 says, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are in the last days, and that's where we are headed, that Jesus will be king over all, and that only he will get the glory. We are sojourners now. We are just passing through this earthly life, but we are assured of that glorious future of Jesus' reign. And so then, as sojourners, followers of Jesus follow Jesus, we are living in the last days. We need to be ready. So how do we live? That's where the passage continues. What do we do with the time we have left? Let's keep going with verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Church family, instead of living in fear, instead of trying to escape reality, instead of getting home at the end of the day and kind of shutting off the brain, not thinking, losing our heads, trying to get away from reality, trying to just, just hope it all away, the, the idea here in this passage, the idea of these two words, self-controlled and sober-minded, we could say this another way, clear-headed. Followers of Jesus, in the midst of it all, in the midst of this world that you're living in, in the midst of this sojourn, in the midst of things that are hard and painful, trial and suffering, stay clear-headed. Keep your heads. Think clearly. Be thoughtful. Stay ready. Don't panic about what's going on, but what does verse 7 urge us to do? Don't panic, but pray. But pray. David Helm posed this question when I was studying this week. Could it be that the strength of our private prayer life is an indication of our progress in being clear-headed? That's rough. That's rough for me to read. Someone that wants to grow in his prayer life, that wants to spend more time talking with the one who judges justly, that wants to entrust myself to the one who judges justly instead of running around in fear, in panic, in questioning. 
could it be that the strength of our private prayer life is an indication of our progress in self-control and sober-mindedness? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love that in verse 8, it says love earnestly. So the idea here is for our love to be real, to be sincere, to be genuine. And notice that it says love one another. There's so many of these one another's in the scriptures that, that, that remind us how relational our Christian life is to be, that we are made in the image of God, made needing relationship. And so we're called as we follow God and as we live for him to love others, to be sincere in our love and to be kind in our love, to be genuine in our love and and to recognize the importance of being relational. Followers of Jesus are to love other followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are to love other followers of Jesus that are not in this room. Followers of Jesus are to love other followers of Jesus who attend other churches. Churches of followers of Jesus are to love other churches full of followers of Jesus. When sin threatens to tear apart our relationships, when conflict threatens to tear apart relationships, we love because God first loved us. And we stand ready to forgive. The passage says, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. We know that Jesus is the only one who forgives sin. But this is saying that our love in the midst of these interactions goes a long way to diffusing, to bringing reconciliation. Love one another. Stand ready to forgive. Verse 9. Follower of Jesus, we are living in the end times. We have limited time. We are to be ready for Jesus' return. And so therefore, what has he said so far? So far he said, therefore, be clear-headed. Love one another. And now number nine says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is an interesting one in our times that an outworking of God's work in our life is to show hospitality without grumbling. When, when this was written, it was much more uh, normal to be hospitable and much more necessary for Christians. In the New Testament times, when you needed to travel, it wasn't just get on booking.com and find a hotel. It was, I'm going to travel to this other place and I'm dependent on family or my Christian family, for how I, where I stay and what I eat. We see this in the scriptures, don't we? Going from place to place and staying with other believers. And so this was critical at that time, especially if we were spreading the gospel. We were sending missionaries. We were depending on other Christians, taking them in, feeding them, uh, supporting this gospel good news going out with hospitality and care. And you know what, though? What's the challenge for us? One of the commentators I studied this week pointed this out, that, um, that uh, one of our downsides of our, of our Western culture, of our American mentality, is this individualism. 
And you know what this individualism causes us to do? It causes us to drive into our driveway, drive into the garage, roll the garage door down, and never see anybody around us. Our individualism causes us to go into our house and protect our house because my house is my castle. But the scripture repeatedly calls followers of Jesus to be hospitable, to to consider uh, and to be intentional about the fact that my home and my dinner table are to be open and to be shared rather than a place to retreat into. And it's that individualism that causes grumbling hosts. This is my place. This is my stuff. This is my money. This is my time. This is my food. I'm not sure I want to share. Oh, I guess maybe I should share. Maybe I should share because I think the Bible said, and my pastor said this last Sunday. <laughs> Be hospitable without grumbling. This is one reason, church family, this is one reason our life groups are in homes. One reason that we love to encourage you as a member of this church to be part of a life group is because it shows that God does stuff away from here. That yes, this is special. And being here and gathered together on Sundays is awesome and important and critical and special and this will never go away. But we put life groups in homes to show that God is at work in your home. That Christians can care for one another out there, not just this sacred place, but that Christianity is lived out everywhere right? And that we care for one another in our lives and interacting with each other and that we open our homes and that we open our tables. And it's a struggle. It's a growth area in our church to see our homes and our dinner tables and our life groups as open and welcome and to share. We're getting there, but it's a growth area to put the need for hospitality and care for others, and welcoming, and inclusion over my castle, and what's comfortable, and what's already established. May God use our homes and our dinner tables for ministry, for him glorifying, for God working through you, to see Jesus glorified. May God use our homes and our dinner tables for, for ministry, for evangelism, for discipling others, for encouraging one another, for strengthening believers, for inviting in those that don't yet know Jesus. May that be the purpose of our hospitality, and may we be a hospitable church family without grumbling. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are living in the last days. Time is short. We want to be ready. We want to follow in the steps of Jesus. And so how do we live like Jesus? So far, our passage has told us to be clear-minded, to love one another, to be hospitable to one another. And now this last one for today says, Each of us has a gift, a spiritual gift, a gift of grace. We're not talking about natural skills or abilities. We're talking about as a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift of grace or more, a supernatural ability 
of some kind that is unique and is needed for the whole church family. And so verse 10 says, as each of us has received a gift, use it. Put it into action. We are to be stewards. God has given us this gift, and he's given you time and energy and money and, and, and resources and a home and a dinner table and all that. And so we steward it. We steward it what? For our own purposes, to make life what we want our life to be, or we steward what God has given us for his glory by going downtown on Tuesday night and giving out free hot dogs just because we can. As, a, as each of us has received a gift, use it, put it into action, find the place to serve one another, serve the body of Christ. Each of the parts of the body is critical and important and needed. You have a place to serve. You have a gift to be shared. Your church family needs you. The body of Christ, the church, functions best and is most healthy when all the parts are doing their thing and are involved and are serving and are giving of themselves, not for attention to themselves, but so that Jesus gets the glory and so that his purposes prevail in our church family. The, uh, in just a few minutes after we gather, there's a membership lunch today. Of, of several, many of you have, a few, many have signed up for it. It's over in the community center. And every time we do these membership lunches, this membership class, uh, this verse comes up, chapter 4, verse 10. Because one of the commitments that we've made in this church family, that if you're an official member of Faith Church and have gone through these, this, this class and have committed to this official membership, uh, this two-way commitment between you and this church family, one of the commitments you've made is to serve, is to recognize that God has gifted you and he has put you in a church family and that you are a need, important and needed part of that family. And so the, the, our official members have committed to finding a place to serve. So with our time left, we are to stay clear-headed, to love one another, to show hospitality, and to serve one another. Why? Because the end of verse 11 tells us, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us and for an opportunity to study your word this morning together. Father God, I, I, I thank you for the Bible. For chances to study it together on Sunday, certainly, but God, I thank you for the gift of your word that you've given to each of us, that we live in a place where we have it in writing, where we can own a copy, where we can come to you daily to hear from you through your word. And so God, I pray for myself and for my church family that we would seek you by studying your word. And that even as we journey through difficult books that remind us of pain and suffering and that call us to suffering, God, I pray that we would even in that hear from you and that we would embrace the opportunity we have to follow in Jesus' steps, even following him in the way that he endured unjust suffering. God, I pray that if, as we choose you over the world, I pray that we would know that that will include suffering. 
And that instead of that suffering driving us away from you or causing us to question you, God, I pray that as we follow you, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, as we too endure unjust suffering, I pray that we would be able to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, knowing that even if we don't understand that you are good and that you are at work for our good and, and your glory, give us that trust. Give us faith that sees beyond our circumstances to trust you no matter what. And God, as our church family grows in trusting you no matter what, I pray also for Grace Bible in Tacoma, our sister church, Pastor Dane and the church family there, I pray that they too would grow in being able to entrust themselves to the one who judges justly, that no matter what the circumstances going on around them, they would walk with you following in Jesus' steps, living for you in all they do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.